When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My first assignment, I asked somebody, how is this job going to help me get to the top? And they said, this might not have been the job that you thought, but what I need you to understand is you don't even want a straight ladder in career. You want to go up and go across and you're going to build a toolkit of different skills that you will not understand if they're going to help you at this point in time. But when you get where you're trying to go, you'll realize that you got all these tools from some of the jobs that you wanted and some of the jobs you never thought were going to be valuable. So learn everything you can. And one day you're going to look back and be extremely grateful. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show for Black History Month, we're featuring a chat with Nigel Tita Reed, who's currently Chief Brain and Experience Officer at Mars Pet Care. It's a great conversation about maintaining balance with feet on both sides of the world, literally. Nigel was introduced to me by John Pepper, one of PNG's former CEOs, and someone I've had the privilege of many conversations on and off the mic because of my podcast work. John was actually one of Nigel's earliest mentors, and he knew he would have a great conversation. This chat is actually from when Nigel was CMO of Logitech and was living in Switzerland as a black woman, which is something we talked about. You know, Nigel's career and her life have led to some really interesting choices, and we had a really revealing conversation about some of those personal and professional choices she's made over the years. She's worked across some of the world's top brands in multinational roles, including companies like Logitech, Kiro, Bayer, and Merck. And before that, she spent 19 years at P&G, rising through the ranks in marketing and sales with an early stint in what was then called multicultural marketing. Nigel earned her MBA from the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University, and she has a BA in English from Spelman College. She also completed the Executive Leadership Program at IMD in Lausanne, Switzerland, the Women's Executive Leadership Program at Simmons University, and the Design Thinking Program at the Stanford School of Design. Yeah, I mean, Nigel's great. Her resume doesn't even scratch the surface of the level of empathy and thoughtfulness that we had in our conversation. There's so many threads about her unique experience that tie back to not just her personal, but her professional approach to leadership. She, like me, is the kid of immigrants with all the juxtapositions of feet in both worlds and frankly, having experienced the black American experience and now being a mother and a professional living overseas and watching everything going on here, but also kind of having the oxygen mask, as she says, of not having to deal with some of the baggage that you face as a black woman in America. So we hope you'll enjoy hearing our chat with her. Nigel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me, Roman. I'm grateful to be here. So lots of people already know your professional story where you're currently leading marketing reinvention at Logitech, and you're responsible for reimagining, redefining, and reinventing the global marketing function, reporting directly to the CEO, a past guest Bracken. And 
while you're based in Zurich, you've been an American in Europe for more than a few years. You've got this track record of working at some of the world's top brands and multinational roles like Hero, Bayer, and Merck. And before that, you spent 19 years at P&G rising to the ranks in marketing and sales. I guess the question I have for you is, who are you at the beginning of that career journey? What's a story from your childhood? Oh, gosh, there's so many. I think one story from my childhood would be kind of how I spent my childhood. I spent it going back and forth between the U.S. and a small village in Cameroon, West Africa. Is that because your family was from there, I assume? Yeah, my dad's from Cameroon, West Africa, and made sure my brother and I spent every summer there growing up. But I was born in Pittsburgh. Most people don't know that. And while it can be like a foreign country to some people, <laughs> Pittsburgh can be, but my neighborhood was very homogeneous and it wasn't the most inclusive. But a funny fact is, while it wasn't, at the end of my street lived Mr. Rogers. And so while I have my fair share of stories of incidents in my neighborhood, once upon a time, I knocked on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood for trick-or-treat, and he let all the kids in, and he was so inclusive, and he gave us all passes to see his show. And I remember, despite however I felt in that neighborhood, I lived in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. I really felt included. I worshiped that man. It changed the game for how I felt in that community, the fact that he was very accepting, despite the fact that everyone else may not have been. So that's a real story from my childhood. (laughs) Now, like me, you were born in the U.S., but you mentioned you've got heritage and parents that aren't from the States. How did you kind of thread the needle of that kind of dual identity? Gosh, I think I was very fortunate by being able to spend my summers in Cameroon. And so I think it's easier potentially to thread the needle when you're forced to, right? So you're able to really live this cross-cultural reality of what it would be like to be living in the U.S. and then going to a small village where we had no running water, no electricity, had to walk a mile with water on your head. And so I just took this as, this is the world. This is my reality. And at the end of the day, I will use all these experiences to make me a better person, build my character, and always keep perspective. And I've tried to hold that with me my entire life. I have to ask the question about your grandma because I, in another article, I read the story about something your grandma told you when you were 11 and something <laughs> you told her back. Yes. What do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, it's in many other countries around the world, be it India, be it Cameroon, Africa, Asia, Latin America, even the ambition set for young women and little girls is very different than what we have the privilege of in our Western world. And it's a story I heard about going back to the village and what your family, the, the future your family wanted for you. Well, you have really done your research, Roman. I'm so impressed. But no, it it is true that when I was 11, my grandmother was going to marry me off. And for people who are maybe in a different culture, that is an honor, right? You are groomed. They think highly of you enough to work to marry you off, and you're supposed to be honored. However, that was not my ambition or dream for my life. And so I really had to be courageous when my grandmother introduced me to my future husband to marry me off, of which she had 
spent a lot of time organizing and found the really wonderful young man with all the characteristics that she thought were important for a husband and for a really great life by that perspective. And I told her that I didn't want to get married and I wanted to run a business. And I think there's so much I learned from that experience, but she told me if, if that was the case, and to be clear, this was a multi-hour walk that we went to to marry me off and a multi-hour <laughs> walk there and back. And, and back, exactly. So I don't want to make it sound like this happened in 20 minutes. And she asked me my vision for my life and why I wanted to run a business and why I wanted to go to high school and graduate from college. And in the end, she really supported me and said, if that's the case that I needed to really learn from the best, I needed to do my best, right? And, and I needed to make sure that I gave my best in all that I did. And, and at that moment, I really learned how your words can create your world. I mean, that's something that I learned at a very young age because all I had was a dream and my voice and I used it. And I'm so grateful that I had someone to listen to me on the other end. That's amazing. So you come back to Pittsburgh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> After that sounds like, man, when I was 11, I don't think I had to deal with that. Most of us didn't. But you come back to, quote unquote, normal life, high school, the trappings of our society. What did you do? Like, what did you want to be? You wanted to run a business. But I mean, did you have, did you get a job? What did you do as a kid? What did you what did you yeah. want to be when you grew up at that moment? So, you know, first thing I have to say, it, it was a maybe a, a typical American, very fortunate life because, you know, normal is is so relative that I have to acknowledge that for all the diverse backgrounds and, and ways that people grow up, grew up. But one that people could relate to in America is in some ways is is how I experienced it. I grew up playing with friends and my my we moved from Boston to California, from, from Pittsburgh to California to Boston. And then I was 14 or so when I was told it was time to get a job, right? So coming from the background that I came from, you were expected the first day that you could work to go get a job. So I went and started filing applications. And the day that I could work, I went and got my first job. And it was at Friendly's Ice Cream. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so if we fast forward to today and your career, how are you similar and different from that younger version of yourself, the one who had to tell her grandma what you really wanted and the one who came back and went to school and started working at Friendly's. I think the similarity is I still believe that your words can create your world. I still believe that if you you can dream it and you can find great mentors and support in your life and you're willing to work hard, that you've got a great possibility of achieving it. And I've worked time and time again to create possibilities where sometimes I didn't see them, only to be very fortunate to be able to create that world of possibilities by vision and words and lots of great support along the way. So speaking of that support, you have a really interesting story. I usually like to ask a question about like an early defining career moment. And you had the opportunity to come into P&G much sooner than most, I think in high school. Yes. And you met someone along the way very early on that most <laughs> of us don't meet till, I don't know, they start a podcast. Can you tell us about that chance encounter? Yeah, I definitely, let's be clear, this is youth and bits of uh, naivety and that young courage all at once. But I joined PNG when I was 17 years old, and I joined with 
a program called the Inroads Program. And the Inroads Program was a national U.S. program that went and found young, talented minority students from high school with the hopes of providing some of the best internships and corporations in the U.S. to make sure that people had the experience. And so one could never say they couldn't find talented, diverse candidates. And so the thought was you start very early, the companies groom you for an internship, and by the time you graduate, no company should be able to say that. And so just for context, that's why I started at the age of 17. I was very focused on on getting a PNG internship because a professor in my high school had told me that was the best place in the world to work. So I asked every adult for a year, how do you work at PNG to find one person on a plane who told me that they were looking for high school students. And that's how I I, I found my way to PNG. But when I came to Cincinnati for that first summer trip with all the interns, there was a small handful of us who were high school seniors. And then there, everybody else was a second year MBA student who was 10 or 11 years our senior. And we were in the same internship program. And the CEO at the time walked by all the interns of all ages and backgrounds and shook our hand. And every few people, he would stop and ask our name, a little bit about ourselves and how he could help us. And of course, I thought it was completely and absolutely genuine. And so when he got to me, I happened to be one of the fortunate people where he asked how he could help. And someone had told me the most important thing in corporate America was to get a great mentor. And so I asked if he would be my mentor. And I was very fortunate that the gentleman was John Pepper. And he didn't say yes at that moment. He just smiled graciously at the 17-year-old kid and said, oh, let me get your name and information. I felt so special. And the person next to me was like, he's never going to call you. Are you kidding? I can't believe you're bold enough to ask that question. And I felt like the smallest person in the world. And I went back to Boston where my sales internship was. And weeks later, I got a piece of physical mail. And I opened it, and it was letterhead by John Pepper. And he wrote something very kind and said that he had done his research, and he'd talked to my manager, and he would be honored to be my mentor. And I still have that piece of paper. And he has been a mentor for all these years, which is many, many years ago. And I'm grateful. Yeah, what I love about that, not not only the audaciousness of youth. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if an MBA intern would have done that, right? But also links back to the earlier story. It's shaping your future with your words and your experiences and just kind of making choices in the moment, right? To go after what you wanted. Absolutely. You have to be courageous. All someone can say is is no. And anyone in sales learned that very early. Well, so you wind up coming into the company full-time. Are, are there any early defining career moments or lessons that you learned along the way in the sales and marketing kind of growth trajectory that you had? Gosh, there's, there's, so, there's so many. I think one of the early ones is one of my first managers, and I, and I started, I'm thinking back to my internship as well as when I started as a sales manager, but there was a gentleman, his name was Roscoe Robinson. And he was an extraordinary sales leader and trainer. And he was the first person to really teach me how to put a sales presentation together and the five steps of persuasive selling and how to handle objections. And he really 
spent time training me and helping me, giving me a chance to practice and role model it and help me understand what to do when a buyer said no and walked away, right? And how that's the beginning of the sell. He spent so much time, although he had a full-time job, developing me and investing in me that it just, it stuck with me so strongly that to be with a company where people view their success as not just the business, but how they developed people, that it stayed with me for the rest of my career. And whenever I have a new hire, I will always stop and take the time to treat him, to treat them or with the same really integrity, respect, care, and compassion, patience that this gentleman gave me. So for Roscoe Robinson, wherever you are, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. It was very special to have someone who would invest in you that young. That's great. Yeah. We had a guest on the show say something like, leadership is time inefficient. And it just feels right when you hear about that, right? Investing in people costs. Even like when John Pepper had to think about, he couldn't tell you yes immediately because he had to consider it. But it's the right investment to make. So grateful. On the flip side of that, were there ever any moments where things didn't work out the way you thought they were early on in your career? And kind of what were some of those lessons? Yeah, well, I'd say I guess there's 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 many, but oh, let me let me think of there's there's, there's multiple. <laughs> I would say at some point in time when I moved to Cincinnati or my first assignment in headquarters. I thought that was going to be a street rise to the top. <laughs> and and I came in and instead of having the job that I thought I was going to potentially have, I was asked to lead sales training for the company. And I was thinking everything in Cincinnati was about the brands and global and things like that. And, and I went and did this job and I did love it. I loved being able to teach and train and develop people. And I asked somebody, how is this job (laughs) going to help me get to the top? And they said, well, this might not have been the job that you thought you were going to have when you came to Cincinnati. But what I need you to understand is there is not a straight ladder in your career. You don't even want a straight ladder in career. You want to go up and go across and go up and go across. And as you go across, you're going to build a toolkit of different skills that you will not understand if they're going to help you at this point in time. But when you get where you're trying to go and you look back and you look at your toolbox, you'll realize that you got all these tools from some of the jobs that you wanted and some of the jobs you never thought were going to be valuable. So learn everything you can from this job and every time that you think that you might be not have the job that you want. And one day you're going to look back and be extremely grateful. And I learned everything I could with that job. And then I had jobs that were my dream jobs and some that weren't. But every job I thought about it as a tool, a toolbox. What can I learn? What can I put in my toolbox? And I look back and some of the greatest skills that I have are from the jobs that I might not have thought were that valuable at the time. And so it was all about perspective. So how do you turn something that isn't what you think into perspective? Someone gave me that and and I learned a lot from that. So I have to ask this because so many people in our audience are rising minority professionals, be it female, black, brown, et cetera. And I guess, can you share any moments where you face professional adversity as a female leader? And kind of how did you handle those moments? Oh yeah, there's there's many and and because I can honestly say the skin that I'm in, you can't always separate whether it was because you were female or in my case because you were African American. And I can only guess on 
which bias might have led to some of these things. One bias, I think, from being female is is every time that I felt that I did something really well when it came to people, I was told that maybe I should move to HR and stop trying to go after the general management path. And I've never heard a guy who was good with people for that automatically to be the response. And I got that probably at least 15 times in my career. So that's a bias. And oh, by the way, how do, you ha- how do you handle it in that moment, Nigel? In that moment, I tell people HR is an amazing profession. And I'm grateful that you think that I would be great, that I'm good enough with people that I could be a good HR leader, but I wouldn't want to be a general manager. And a general manager also needs to be good with people. So help me understand why is it that you are leaning me towards HR as opposed to general management? And I have to be quiet and ask that question. Nine out of 10 times, it's just bias that they didn't even realize that they were seeing me as something that I didn't see myself as. And I've learned when I got more experience to really, when I could work for people that saw me as I saw myself, those lessons remind me of that. So another thing, and you've written about this a little bit, or folks have interviewed about this, is the idea of America's black brain drain. African-American professionals, many have the privilege to get assignments and to work abroad, but then they sometimes choose to stay there. I, I have a former P&G marketing buddy of mine on another podcast, and we were talking about he got married, he lives in the UK, and he's been questioning, questioning if he wants to come back with his young son. And you talk about, I don't know, the James and the Josephine effect. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about not just your perspective, but why you think African-American or Black American professionals choose once they get the opportunity to leave the country to kind of stay out and and have, have a very fruitful career? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And for those that may not get the reference to James and Josephine, it's, it's a reference to James Baldwin and Josephine Baker, two extraordinarily talented African-American artists in different genres that came to Europe and were treated better than they were treated in the United States. And so we call it James and Josephine effect because you find that you come outside of the U.S. And oh, by the way, of course, it's not everywhere. and This is not something that everyone experienced. But there are multiple times that you are treated better here than you are in your homeland. I can give an example that when I, I moved to the UK, which was my first international assignment, and I walked into a room and I had my whole team there that happened to have been British. The account that I was calling on with my team, and I was the general manager, he said to me, oh, well, you, you must be in charge. And I realized that in my entire career, when I had been with white men especially, they had always assumed that I worked for them. I had never, ever had the deference that I was the boss. And that's one example. Another example was when I was working for a German company and they had gone through an extensive interview process and I I got the job and I asked, what made you choose me for the job? And he said, well, it was simple. You took the test, the assessment, the interview (laughs) process, and you were simply the best. And I realized in my entire career, I actually never heard those words that you were the best. I've heard qualifiers will take a risk on you. I've heard 
you do really, really well for an African-American female. It's always qualified. And it's not always the case for everybody, but that had been a lot of my experience, which of course is just bias. I'm not saying the people that said these things meant bad, but it really can begin to weigh on you that the expectations are not that you can be your best or that you could be the boss or that they see you in certain roles. And so when you get in an environment where people can see that, it's quite refreshing. And like I said, it's not all the time and it's not everywhere. But I think when you have a taste of that, it's very hard to give up because, of course, people are always ideally going to overperform when that's the expectation. And that is why we call it the James and Josephine effect. Yeah, it's almost like this oxygen mask. Yes, that happens. that's definitely how I describe it. And of course, I miss many things about and great things about the U.S., but I do find that working outside of the U.S., I have different concerns, just not the same concerns about being African-American executive. For one, and I want to make sure that I qualify this because it's not like there's not bias and all the isms outside of the U.S. <laughs> there are and yeah. sometimes much more. So please don't make it sound like a Pollyannic statement. But because depending on the diversity of the organization that you are, it tends to be a lot more global. So instead of being in a group that might be more homogeneous and then you, although you all might in this case be American, here you could be in the room and there are literally 12 or 20 different cultures and you're just one of them. So it becomes more equitable from that standpoint. Everyone's in the same boat. Everyone's in the same boat. And of course, we could add all sorts of isms depending on the circumstance. But there's something culturally that makes it a a little bit more of an even playing field. And because of, unfortunately, the history of the U.S., not everyone looks at the racial aspect as potentially something they were taught that is a negative. You just, they're just traits that you happen to have. And that's not something many African-Americans get a chance to have the privilege of experiencing. I would imagine, if anything, the bias might tend to you being an American in the room versus... <laughs> it's always more American than, than, it, than it is, or it's more female than it is, is racial. And oh, by the way, those are bias you have to overcome as well. They can be a pro and a, and a con, like every bias can be. But yeah, that's that's really it's a it's a very interesting effect. And I do think to the point of your your comment, Raman, about the brain drain, anybody of any bias, if they get a situation where they're treated more equitable, how would you and why would you want to give that up? That's what it comes down to. It's all about really, if you want to unleash human potential, then you want to make sure that people are treated equitably. And that's the advice I would give for any American leader is definitely don't have someone have to leave the country to feel that way. Make sure your employees and your team feel that way now. I mean, by all means, we want to turn this experience into a positive, especially for up and coming leaders that are listening. Yeah, it's I mean, it's psychological safety, right? Just like more diverse teams perform better. Studies have shown us teams that feel psychologically safe do their best work. Absolutely. And it has all to do with the safety and the inclusion, not just the diversity where people feel like they can come authentically and perform at their their best and not have to hide or, in many cases, act like a certain gender or a certain sex in order to be accepted and be viewed as a leader. So you're able to be your best self as yourself. That, of course, is when you can get brilliance, excellence, and authenticity. So a lot of us face career forks of the road, those kind of inflection points where you make a certain decision and it sets you on a path. 
Is one of those taking that first assignment abroad or were there other ones kind of key moments in your career that kind of set you on the path that you're on? Absolutely. One of the biggest crossroads was taking international assignment for what it meant for me and my family and the fact that there were so, I could barely find other African-American females who had worked outside of the U.S. I mean, it was a very hard thing just to find another example. I had to look hard and wide to find an example to get the experience. And and it was a crossroads to say, is this the right thing for my family? Or am I doing something detrimental to take them away from the culture that they know? And if we do leave, are we ever coming back, right? So that was a huge crossroads. And because I had a real privilege of growing up with the mindset of being a global citizen in a way that I think really protected me from some of the isms that I had experienced because I definitely felt like I belonged in this world and no one could call me a name to call me out of it. I wanted my kids to have that same experience. And for me, that was worth taking the leap to be able to raise them in an environment where people expected the best from them and they could grow up knowing that they had a rightful seat at the table and a rightful place in this world. And that has been our experience thus far. I've got to ask, where were you career-wise when your kids were born? Were you still in the States or were you already living overseas? Oh, no. When my kids were born, I was a brand manager at P&G and I was a global brand manager and I had a one and two-year-old and I was working in Cincinnati. Yes. And how, how were you able to find a balance then? Or how did that play out over the years as you started to progress further in your career? Yeah, I think it's a really great question you asked, Raman, about balance. And i definitely can tell you I've never found the balance and I've definitely advised other parents not to seek balance. I have definitely worked to seek harmony because- What's the difference between the two? Balance would mean that you're working the same amount of hours as you are at home, right? Or you're a parent the same amount of hours that you're at work. If people who think balance think it's 50-50, right? Just you think your partnership or your, your marriage is balanced, you probably often will be disappointed as well. And so it's really about harmony. And how do I make sure that things are right and harmonious at home and right and harmonious at work? And... That's what I strive for. When I strove for balance, I just felt guilty all the time. And oh, I won't say I don't feel guilty now, but I'm not striving for an unrealistic goal. And when I had a one and two-year-old, I was I had to stop trying to find balance and find harmony and put a lot of things in my life that could help me with that harmony. That helped tremendously. And it helps to this day. I want to keep coming back to you being overseas. So being a mom, I think your kids are a little bit older than mine. <laughs> the idea of coming home or not wanting to come home, your children are black young men, I believe, right? Yeah, so I have like, a young young man and a young woman. Yes, oh, I do. Okay. But both how, very young, young teenagers. How does that play into your decision to stay out there in Europe versus coming back to America? Well, I think given when we're having this conversation, it always played to me that I was working in the U.S., but I was always experiencing a certain level of stress for having a young African-American boy and a husband in my house that I personally always felt were treated like endangered species in the U.S. I feared when they went out, 
I feared if they didn't come home on time. And I feared it for all the reasons that I think the broader society understands today. But back then, we didn't talk about it. I mean, outside of our community, we didn't talk about brutality or safety or bias or those things until they started to be recorded and people could believe us and understand. And so when I think about where my family is today, of course, I do miss much of the culture and and the experience and the amazing things about the U.S., but I don't miss being concerned about their physical and psychological safety. That is one of the things that has kept me here, but it's also one of the things that has me still fighting so hard and working in the U.S. to change it. I mean, I'm, I'm still global and I still do a lot in the U.S. to try to change and experience that, but I probably do have a bit more of my oxygen mask on while I'm doing it. I'm doing it and not concerned if my son's going to make it home. And that's a privilege. So I want to shift gears a little bit to the world. I mean, as of this recording, we're almost in December of 2020. It's can't believe the year's almost over. I'm so glad. Oh <laughs> You're not alone. Yes. <laughs> we're undergoing a lot more change. We've had an election. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. And many would argue kind of rudderless leadership for the last year or so has kind of gotten us here. But now we're in a moment of transition. And so I guess my ask is, as someone who sees the world from a very different perspective, what advice would you give our leaders in business and government for how we kind of navigate the next few months, which honestly are going to be just as stressful? That's a big question, Ramit. <laughs> <laughs> you made us all this for us, Exactly. Oh, it was like, did I, I tell you what my day job was? I was like, no. So if I had to give a piece of advice, especially if I'm giving it to a, a U.S. right leadership to the, to the case of, of, this particular audience. Inbound or outbound leadership. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll, I'll focus on inbound leadership, but it would be to recognize that what significant amount of the population has a different preference, right? For, for leadership and what they thought was the right choice versus who, who was voted in. So that's on both and sides. It's on, it's on both sides. I would say you've got to try to figure out what was driving people to make those decisions and how do you address the root cause of people's choices so that everybody can feel a bit more psychologically and physical safe in, in the country? Because I think that's driving a lot of the behaviors. I think it comes down to fear. I really do. Or whatever people may have voted for, I think fear is a big driver on, on people's decisions, whether it's economic, I won't even get into it, but fear. That's what that's what I'd say. And I'd say try to figure out what's causing the fear and figure out how can you help people see outside of that fear. That's what I would say. Yeah. The interesting thing, I mean, whether or not the justification of the fear is real, the feeling is real on again on both sides. And- oh, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean at the end of the day it doesn't matter if it's real, it's perceived. So really it's trying to understand real. what what is behind that perceived fear. And not feed into that, but really work to try to understand it and address it. Because I think that's that's really making a huge wedge across what is a great country. That's what I would say. And looking at the U.S. from outside of the U.S. 
it's tragic. It really is tragic. All the ideals and all the things that we were known for globally have become a bit of a joke and people no longer believe us. Is it real or unreal? Are we united? Are we really about inclusion and diversity? Are we really about this American dream? I mean, all the things that we've hyped for so long, people are questioning it all. So I really do believe that we need to come back to redefining what it means to be American and building it up again. That's what I think we need to do. Yeah, I I think I read somewhere, the job is always incomplete. And it always has been. Maybe taking things for granted is is what gets dangerous or complacency, but there's a lot of work we have to do. What? Yeah, and I and there's a lot of recon, reconciliation we need to do, and I think we can learn from a lot of other countries as well. It's by no means is everything about the vision or race, although those are very popular and front of mind topics as we talk at the end of 2020. But I do think that a country that hasn't reconciled the past, it's very hard for them to move forward. And I think we could learn from other countries and do that. So to get more optimistic, I guess, <laughs> yeah. what excites you about the future? Oh, gosh, there's as a ton. I mean, for one, a vaccine. <laughs> that, that excites me <laughs> since I've been in the house for nine months straight. But I think what really excites me probably because of maybe also what I'm doing for for a living, is the fact that we can redefine how we work. I've heard a term recently by a gentleman named Keith Ferrazzi that he said, let's not go back to work, let's go forward to work together. So the fact, and I love that, right? Going forward to work, that's an opportunity for us all to redefine how we work or experience life or play or all those things. And that really excites me, an opportunity to transform our way of being. Like We've all hoped for that. All of us that wanted to see your family more or not travel or work from anywhere, those were like dreams of a future state. We're here now. So as leaders, I'm really excited that I get to shape that future and I can do it now. And how exciting is that? I mean, we'll look back 20, 50 years from now and say, this was the moment that we redefined how to work and experience and play. I'm super excited about that. And, and I'm, it's, it's my top priority. Regardless of the why, the inflection point, the, the thin silver lining is everything changes. Yeah. And we can go forward together. So I feel like we could go so deep on so many topics, but we've only got a few more minutes left. So I want to ask you a few fun questions. What's something about you that surprises people when they find it out? (laughs) Gosh, maybe that I have 30 aunts and uncles. (laughs) (laughs) And they're on both sides of the Atlantic, right? They're on both sides of the Atlantic, absolutely. So what's your go-to media escape? Are you more of a movie, book, or TV person? I'm more of a... Probably a TV book person. So what are some of your guilty pleasures or or what's a book you might recommend to a friend? Oh, gosh. So one guilty pleasure is actually, what's it? Is it James Corbin's like carpool karaoke? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's just like instant happiness. When you that's just it. instant yeah. happiness and joy. Like that's just 10 minutes of escape of just pure joy of, of fun. So that's like, a, that's a guilty pleasure. 10 minutes and I, I'll, I'm laughing by myself. I think a book on a more serious side, it's a book that I recently read called Untamed. And I think for a lot of young 
oh, I guess I shouldn't say young, any, any leader could read that book and appreciate that there are a lot of stereotypes that are put on people, but in this case, the book is about females, that allow us to behave very tamed, right? We are taught a lot of stereotypes and we therefore work to live and a conceived notion of these stereotypes that in many ways holds us back from being our best self. And then we pass that on to the next generation. And I think this book really just brutally, honestly, unapologetically really unleashes what is possible if we could let go of some of those stereotypes of being female and be our true authentic self, rise to our greatest greatness and not live into stereotypes that were taught to us. I love the concept and I really am very passionate about building up young leaders and especially young female leaders. And I would really want to empower them to let go of some of the cages that hold us back. So you've been a lot of places around this world. You've lived in a lot of them, but assuming we can travel again, <laughs> which, you know, <laughs> yes. but where's one place you would want to go back to and spend more time? Oh, top of my head, it's Fiji. Yeah, it's beautiful. There's just a certain joy that that's in the air and the culture. And I love every everything about it. You've already pre-ordered your flights for it, haven't you? Oh, gosh, I so wish I, yeah, I should. <laughs> What's one new place you would want to go to that you've not been to yet? Maybe Maldives. I haven't actually been there. It's been on my my bucket list. And I think I, given all this COVID situation, I'm accelerating everything on the bucket list. And <laughs> yeah, my first opportunity, that's where I'm going. Who's someone out there that you would still want to get a coffee with? Oh, gosh. So many people. Give me a second just so I can think about that. I'd still honestly want to get a coffee with the Obamas collectively. Both? All four of them or two or of them? Just, I probably would do all four of them. I mean, as I'm working to, to raise a family, they've gone through so much together. And I think they're only stronger for it. To me, that's just a great example of two working parents who've raised children, who honestly have, they don't just continue to climb, but they lift as they climb. And that's the aspiration that I have for me and my husband and my kids. And I would love to sit down and talk about how they do that and pass it on to their children. To me, that's the goal. So I'd love to sit and and have a conversation with them outside of all the obvious reasons anyone would ever want to meet them. (laughs) (laughs) So in closing, what's one final piece of advice or even a challenge that you would give to the next generation of leaders? The next generation of leaders, I would, I would definitely give the advice that don't spend so much time trying to learn the rules that the past generation have set. Really work to change the rules, change the game. You have the power to do that. The whole world has just hit the reset button. Take this opportunity to define the future that you want and the world will work to accommodate you. And I'll be here to support you. That's great. Nigel, this has just been such a fantastic conversation, not just about your your career and your experiences, but your perspective, which it's just a refreshing one as, as we go into this new year. So thanks so much for making the time for the podcast. Raman, I'm grateful for you giving me the time and for all that you're doing to share the stories with the next generation. Thanks so much. 
And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work, limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.